You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I am Kenneth. At the night, we're looking at Space Above and Beyond, Episode 7, The Enemy. And before we start with this synopsis, I just want to say that when I, I saw the name The Enemy in the queue for the next episode, my brain instantly went to, we have met the enemy and he is us. And you're right, my guess. And, uh, Maybe. Yeah. We'll talk about that quote later, but I mean, that one, that one definitely... Uh, just instantly popped into my head, and I go, I, I don't see why I've made that connection. Maybe it's the fact that they used the word the, and it, I don't know, but it just, it just popped. Anyway, episode synopsis. Colonel McQueen and Admiral Ross questioned members of the Fighting 58th to determine if Damp Mouse should be court-martialed for failure to follow orders in a combat situation. Through flashbacks, the story of a fateful mission to the planet called Tataras unfolds. Tataras is an inhospitable failed star of a planet with a lethal atmosphere and burning temperatures in excess of 60 degrees Celsius. The team discusses rumors about the planet, that it is a worthless planet with no strategic value, that thousands of lives have been lost fighting over it, that there are massive numbers of desertions and deaths by friendly fire. Yet, for some reason, the brass continue to pursue securing the planet. Landing on the planet, they soon come under nearby fire, and marines from outside clamber desperately to get into the shuttle. The weapons fire isn't coming from the Chigs. It's a marine. Tank wants to shoot him, but the others decide to try to capture him. As they exit the vehicle, they find many more marine bodies killed by the gunman. The crazed marine runs out of bullets, and they try to talk him into putting his weapon down. He cannot be reasoned with, and he says that they should be afraid of him as he is of himself. He steps on a Chigan landmine and dies. As the team return to the shuttle, a series of flashing lights penetrating all the way to their skeletons hits them, giving them radiation burns and headaches. Damp Mouse is the first to manifest signs of madness as she freaks out at the sight of her own blood. As the others try to comfort her, Wang freaks out when he sees a cockroach. He chases it, and he kills it with a knife. Fortunately, he also kills the transmitter at the same time. Now, they cannot call the colonel for help. Damp Mouse has an idea. Out amongst the corpses is a portable communications pack. They could remove a part from it, and she could repair the radio. It should be her job to go out and get the part, but she refuses a direct order because she will not put on her bloodstained suit. The others go out, but all are suffering from various forms of psychoses. Killer is afraid of the dark, Tank is claustrophobic, and West keeps hearing a woman calling for help. As the others get the part, West wanders off following the voice. He comes to a marine bunker, and he meets a sergeant that tells him, in incoherent terms, that the light is their worst nightmares. He disappears before the others arrive. Inside the bunker, all the marines have murdered each other. West and Wang put the pieces together. The light is a chig weapon that disrupts the amygdala part of the brain to regulate fear. The fear ultimately causes everyone to turn on one another. They return to the ship, but along the way, Killer steps on a landmine. 
Wang attempts to save her by using a mirror to deflect the lethal beam from the mine when he discovers a cockroach in his helmet and he freaks out. Wes steps in and saves Killer, but they are zapped again by the light, amplifying their fears. Inside the shuttle, Aunt Mouse accidentally spilled blood on the all over the floor, and she cannot move from her current location because she would have to cross the blood. She will not let the others into the shuttle, and they have to hotwire the airlock door. Now that they have the part, she will not go to the radio. The team's fears have all gotten them into a Mexican standoff. They will kill each other rather than face their fears. Ultimately, Killer places the part and calls for help. McQueen receives a distress call and lands 75 meters away on the other side of the minefield. Mustering their courage and a Marine Corps song, they make their way across the minefield to the waiting shuttle. West wanders off again when he hears the woman's voice, but Killer brings him back. After hearing the testimony, the Admiral and McQueen decide not to press charges. Okay, well, uh, you know, at least, I I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, at least this was sort of a science fiction story, whereas last week's was more of just a you know, political intrigue thing. So here, at least, we're trying to explore the idea of alternate forms of weaponry in science fiction. Yes. Yeah. Good point. But I still um, remembered the bit of, um, you, to use a term I once heard, pseudo-profound um at the end, <laughs> when um, it was Vanson, uh, killer as you call her, uh, who said that the enemy was on the planet, but the enemy was, was not the chicks. I thought that was, um, I thought that was Tank. Was it? it said it wasn't that it wasn't the chigs. I think Vanson started it, and I think yeah, Tank okay, finished You're it. Right. yeah, something You're like right. that. Yes, and which I seemed far to too be... uh, profound for him. Yes, I found it to be rather uh, try uh, uh, evidence of an effort to make something profound out of a not so profound episode. I, I'm I'm not going to disagree. Like I said, it that that quote hit me before this episode starts, and that means this is a very unsubtle attempt. <laughs> it must have been really unsubtle because it just, there it was. Let, let, let me, uh, let, let me, uh, uh, I had to look this up because I wanted to, I wanted to get it right because I've heard that quote forever. We have met the enemy and he is us. Isn't it Pogo? Pogo, yes, that's right. It's Walt Kelly's Pogo. It, was, it first appeared April 22nd, 1970, for the first Earth Day. It is an indictment of who it is that is destroying the Earth. It is us. We are yes. the problem. Okay. Fair enough. It's a play on Admiral Perry's 1813 commentary after the defeat of the British at Lake Erie. Uh, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. Now, I always actually thought that quote was from Admiral Perry, the, the they are us, or he is us. I mean, I've just never bothered to to think about it. The quote is so famous, but it is the Pogo version that is far more famous, I think, because that's what I've heard. I think it, I think it plays into the zeitgeist a little bit better, right? There, there is that yes. sort of yeah, we suck. We're humans. We suck. We've met the enemy, and it's us. Yeah, and and people just have taken that to heart. Um, unfortunately, the writers took that to heart. The writers, the writers, writer, were, writer. were writers, were Glenn Morgan and James Wong. Really, wow. really, they cranked that up. 
one full of plot holes like nobody's business. Yes, the only positive statement um, I have for regarding this episode regards the direction. Okay. Which I thought the directing was capable. It was and it was well done, and um, if that 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 part held my attention, but the story did not. Well, I will have to say that I think that some of the direction with regards to how landmines are placed did not hold up very well mm-hmm. because they're not hidden. <laughs> but they're, they're they're in plain sight. But and they're in the dark. But unfortunately, they can't show us the dark. No. Like they would on the X Files, it's yeah. wide enough for us to see it. So yeah, it kind of and 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 you know, using X Files as an example, you know, they were very good, and it's a contemporary show, and obviously there's some lineage here between the two. They were very good at using very dark sets and very strong lights. You know, they had those I'm, xenon lights, I think it was, that Mulder and Scully would use that were ridiculously bright. But that allowed them to, you know, drop the very dark moody, which is good for a sh- show about scary things. But they should have used that technique here as well. And I'd have been more convinced about uh, Killer having a fear of the dark if it were a lot more dark. Or even the scene where they're in the shuttle when the, the lights are red and she's like, oh, you got to turn on the lights. Like, mm-hmm. the lights are on. They're just red lights. Yeah, red lights. It's yeah. not dark in there. <laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, the um, director was Michael Catelman. Um, I Got looked it. him up. He's been quite busy over the years, um, in all in various. He's been busy in various genres of television. I did look up some genre credits. Uh, he directed uh, Shadows, season one, episode six of the X Files. Shadows that. Unfortunately, X Files names are not always the no. best. Uh, my my brain says that's the werewolf one, but I don't think it is. I can check. And Shadows is okay. The description here is: Mulder and Scully investigate the deaths of two men believed to have been killed by a powerful psychokinetic force. Okay, and that narrows it down to a few. <laughs> and let me see. Yeah, but okay, but yeah, he he directed that one, um, okay. and he directed the last episode of Steven Spielberg's Taken in two thousand two, okay. and that was actually a fairly it was a much better episode than the one we are discussing. <laughs> yeah, while we're on the direction, I I mean I think he did a, a okay. There are some issues that are out of his hands, so I'm I'm not gonna. Where, huge indictment on where, him where the where they're all wearing the same clothes, and they're all got their heads and helmet. helmets. Yeah, they all have helmets. See, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so you can't always tell who's doing what. So, for example, and I only watched this once. There were, here. I believe, three guys trying to get into the shuttle. Yes. 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 They were. One of them was killed, and I thought the other two got on board the shuttle. Whatever happened to them? I do remember that, and I remember that that is unresolved. Okay, good, because we never see them again. They're not in the team when they... I don't think they're in the team when they go to the McQueen's shuttle at the end. No. I don't think they had any contribution to the story when they were all 
Mexican standoffing in the shuttle. It's just like, um, well, what happened? And, I, and maybe they were killed, and I just somehow thought that they were on the shuttle, and it was actually our guys because they were all wearing spacesuits, and so and, and of, you course know, the, you, of course the helmet that has the name, the last name across the top, pretty prominent. Yes, and sometimes reading that name was difficult. Yeah. Or, you know, if they're just not facing the camera. Right. So, yeah, it, it, it just... So that's not their problem. Of course, they're in a dark, murky space, and they're all walking through a, a, a very classic Star Trek-style uh, styrofoam rocks. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, okay, well, that's a group of people. Is that... Do we... Uh, do we know who that is? I don't know. Like I can't tell. So, you know, that that would work against him. There were, you know, there were times where I'm just, hey, all right, I, I'm not sure what's going on here because I don't think they can, first off, I don't think they know what's going on here. But second off, and then they tell it through flashback, which is a terrible way, already, is already a strike against the story. I know there are people who like flashback stories, but, you know, I think you have to be able to, you have to do something with it. And they didn't do anything with it. In this like we case, didn't get different perspectives. Well, they did something with it, but they didn't do what you're talking about here. Um, they they filled out the airtime of the episode with it. Okay. Yes, they filled out some runtime with it. That was it. I will don't disagree there. <laughs> it's I, like I, that. I After I watched this episode and took my notes, I went to the to a website that has has reviews of all these episodes to see maybe I could learn if I could learn something the episode did not tell me <laughs> and the movie blog is the is the name of the website and I have the episode review up on my other computer screen here and this is the opening line of the review on paper the enemy seems like a good idea <laughs> okay, well, I think I might argue with him in the first place, but okay. Um, and then it goes, on to, might be wrong. it goes on to say that the problem with the enemy is that it is just a clumsy mess of a script and one that stumbles over what should be a fairly robust setup. It could have been. It could have been good. I, I'll, I'm, I'm not going to argue there. There is potential for this to be a good story. Like I said, they've got a they've got a solid science fiction idea. I don't think that I don't think that the fact that you are terrified of cockroaches leads inevitably to you killing all of your teammates, right? Yeah. That 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 doesn't work very well at all. Um, and and there's some enormous contrivances in it. Like for example, uh, let's talk about their phobias here real quickly. Yes. Uh, Damp Mouse has a phobia of blood. She Never ha had any manifestation of that previously in the series. And there is a scene where a packet of blood falls out of the pouch on the descent, out of the medical kit, and she kind of gingerly pushes it back in there and slams the chuck. But it you couldn't you couldn't figure out from that that she's supposed to have she's supposed to be terrified of blood. And you'd think being a Marine, maybe being terrified of blood might be a crippling problem. Especially during wartime. Yeah, especially during wartime. But then let's follow that up with the incredible contrivance of managing to break the blood and spill it all over the floor in such a place where she can't cross it, which, of course, she ultimately does. So 
We've had no backstory on that. We go, Tank is apparently concerned with enclosed spaces. Okay, there's a certain irony about a guy who was raised in a tank being afraid of being in a tank, but okay, well, we've not seen that before. And yet, prior to them zapping him with a light, twice, twice, we saw him looking at the helmet before he put it on. I noticed and we're all that. like, why? What, what, what's, and this is, I don't think the director did a good job. It's like, why is he doing that? What, what is about the helmet? Does he see something? Is it, I don't get it. I mean, I, I just didn't get it until later in the thing. And suddenly he's got claustrophobia. And it's like, well, that didn't work. Um, killer. Okay. She has a backstory. She's afraid of the dark because the night the AIs came and killed her parents, it was dark. Counterpoint to that. We have seen that scene. And guess what? It wasn't. It wasn't dark. Yeah. <laughs> so, oops. What? Oops, indeed, on now, that one. Walner or Wang um, is afraid of cockroaches. Now, those were, I believe, Madagascar cockroaches because those are, you know, big and big and nasty looking. I can totally relate to him. Um, I can totally relate to him. I'll, I, I'm sure I've probably told my land of the valley of the dinosaurs cockroach story. We had, you know, we had good sized cockroaches in Tucson when I was a kid. And one day I was, I was watching an episode of Valley of the Dinosaurs. I don't know, six, seven, eight, something like that. And it was a story where the, the giant two-inch soldier ants were swarming the valley, you know, redoing that yeah. film. His name eludes me at the moment. And uh, I'm sitting in the chair, and it, I find that disturbing. And I'm sitting in a, an armchair with my feet up, holding my knees. And I'm watching this thing, and I'm thinking, I get this creepy feeling that something is watching me from behind, and I turn and look at the, 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 the headrest, but you know, the, an armchair kind of comes around you. Yes. Up near your head. There's a cockroach sitting there staring oh, at me. That'd do it. And I mean, I was, I was like through to the other side of the house screaming so fast. It's not funny. And on top of that, occasionally they'd be in my shoes. Yeah. I, I distinctly remember one day I was at school, probably in my third period in high school, and I kept thinking that my sock was bunched up under my foot and I uh -huh. finally took the shoe off to straighten and a cockroach still alive leaps out and runs across the thing Ooh. and it's like I I still to this day tap my shoes before I put them on and this is not because we have scorpions here either this is because there are cockroaches in Arizona there are cockroaches everywhere and uh, we have the big ones so big sewer roaches there but they're not as big as those Madagascar ones but they're they're close so if I had a phobia like him, I would tap my helmet every stick of <laughs> time before I ever put anything on like that. And I can't buy that that was in his helmet because I know from personal experience that I would never put on a space helmet without, especially when I'd already seen cockroaches earlier in the day and was freaking out about them. There was no way that I wouldn't. I used to sleep with my blanket over my head and I would tuck the blanket underneath my right. Because I was afraid the cockroaches would crawl right. over me in the night. And, I mean, I'm sure whoever wrote this has had that experience because his his description was too exactly yes. on the money. But still, I, have we I, ever I, seen a cockroach on the space no, station? No. The, the, no, of course I, not. Actually, I wondered if he was imagining some of those. Well, we did see the other step on them. Yeah, well, some of them. Maybe not. All, but you know. I agree that that was the thought that crossed my mind. 
Is she imagining the cockroaches? At I don't think one. he was. Well, when he pulled out the knife, there was a cockroach on it. Yes. Uh, somebody else stepped on one and did it where he couldn't see. I don't know about the one in his helmet, but uh, I, I don't see how they could have stopped me from tearing that helmet off <laughs> in that deadly atmosphere. Um, you know, and where the heck is he from? I'm not going back to that place. I'm not going. Where is he from? Tucson? <laughs> I thought I Tank know. was the one from Detroit. Oh, I don't know. You know? I, I didn't get anything about the geography, but I just thought maybe he grew up in some tenement. Maybe. Or something. I honestly don't know. I mean, it just was kind of <laughs> going back to that place. I thought maybe he was in a prisoner of war camp, the way he was, the way he was describing it. And then West, he has his fear of never finding his girlfriend. Is that really a, is that really a, an amygdala-type fear? I thought we Isn't knew about that it more of a, that, that's a That's a more... That's not a fear. Well, clearly. I mean, that's not, oh my God, I'm scared to death that I'll never find my girlfriend. You're not scared by that. You may be upset by it. You may be obsessed depressed by it. Obsessed, but you do not yeah. you do not run and pull your pants in terror like all the other people were doing. Right? It's it's the wrong fear. And it just doesn't manifest well in this story. It's like find something that you would actually make him run away. Instead of making him run towards, it just didn't. And that again, it's a poor story. I noticed it too. I did notice a couple of other items here that made me arch an eyebrow and write a note. (laughs) Excellent. Mm -hmm. About 10 minutes in, Wang or Wong uh, uses light year as a unit of measurement of time. Yeah, I saw, I got that. Yeah. Okay, and the Star Wars I, uh, I, approach, yeah, yeah, the parsec thing. I didn't know if that was okay. In Star Wars, I could take it as being clever and maybe humorous, <laughs> so, but in this case, I, this is this is not one for humor. Nope, this is just a mistake. Yes, and then I'll just write. I read my note verbatim here. If disobeying a direct order were a serious offense in this series. <laughs> the series would have included in the pilot episode. Yep. Yes, it would have. Yes, it would have. But we're at war. Yeah. Yeah. One one of many. One of many. Um I mean the um but, the, the, the Mc, McQueen is highly variable as to how much he cares about people disobeying orders. Very much so. Very much so. Depends on whether it works out for the best or not. I guess if it doesn't work out, then you, uh, then you, maybe that's what it is. This didn't work out well, right? Lots of dead Marines. Uh, the team, uh, I mean, it's trying to kill each other. And, uh, so now you disobeyed orders. We're going to take it seriously. But had they rescued, uh, you know, a thousand people, then they would have just ignored it, which, you know, is probably not really the way it should go, but there you go. Got any more notes there? That is it on my notes, and this one was, there was just there wasn't a lot going on in this one. All right, well, I'll I'll hit my uh, I'll okay. hit my uh, mostly picky things. Damp Mouse's suit was damaged. Did she not cut her suit? And that was part of her no. excuse why she would not go out onto the planet. Yes, but in the end, she had to put her suit on and go out onto the planet. She to get to the, and it wasn't a damaged suit. So okay, Killer had a light. 
she kept turning it on because she was like, and, and Tank is like, really, I don't need light. And, and he finally smashed the light. People will so say that they were in the up. dark. And then yeah. they had another light a few minutes later. Mm-hmm. Wang was carrying it, or Wang was carrying it. I think yes. they call him Wang. Uh, that bugs me because it should be Wong. And don't tell me about the computer company because they just got it wrong. But, yeah. So that was that was weird. But again, it comes back to this story doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, where did those two guys go? <laughs> like, <laughs> why did they have to go out and get the chip from the communications pack? Why couldn't they just, I don't know, get the communications pack? Bring it in. And bring it in and then do the work instead of doing it in your spacesuits out in the thing. That didn't make any sense. When they got to this court-martial thing or this preliminary hearing to see if they should have a court-martial and they kept asking these questions, I kept saying to myself, why aren't they hooked up to a truth verifier? Those do exist. Yes, oddly enough, I do believe they do in this very use. But we saw one in the previous episode. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think the same thing about Star Trek, right? You've got Wolf in the Fold. You've got that You've got the truth thing, subject relaying, accurate yeah. response, no physiological changes uh, over and over and over again. And they never use it again. They never use it in any court martial episode. They never use it in any other, not no, even in the don't. future ones. It's like, we just don't use it. And the funny thing is, of course, in real life, we do have lie detectors. And I will say this unequivocally to anyone who has any doubt, it is complete and absolute pseudoscience. It does not work. And the fact that it is admissible in courts in parts of this country is an absolute disgrace. Exactly. And there are intelligence agents who are yes. trained into to, to deceive them. And they don't work to start with. So, yeah. Yes. It's like, yeah. It's just not. Uh, yeah. But anyway, but apparently in this universe, the truth verifier, which doing an eye thing, does work. And they use it in the government. So they should have been using it for us proceedings like this you would think it's a good question let let because this is not a good episode let's ask that question if you had a device which would guarantee force someone to tell the truth or identify when they are lying would it be appropriate to use it in a judicial system when you swear them in on the stand and put them down on the device and say okay now tell us the truth would that if it were if you could prove it was accurate truly accurate would that be a good or a bad thing. Or at least get you, get you the truth. Which I think is what we're always after, but I don't know. Would yes, Perry Mason say yes. that, or is he just into getting his people off, you know? Well, um, well, well Perry Mason usually got the innocent people. That's the way those shows yeah, work. Yeah, he did. At least on Saturday nights, yeah. it, Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it, it just, it, it does raise an interesting question, whether or not you would, whether or not you would want, would people want that? I mean, and... What good argument could you make against it? I guess I guess you don't want people going on fishing expeditions, which I will say that is something Perry Mason did all the time. He would he would cast a net during his interrogation of people or his questioning of people to try to get additional facts thrown in. And if you were on a truth verifier, how would you decide whether the question was appropriate to be asked so as to not reveal something that was not germane specifically to the case that might prejudice? I, I don't know. It, Good question. I think probably better minds than mine, or at least better yeah. legal minds than mine, uh, would need to look it up. Uh, but hopefully we're we're nowhere. We're no. Would you need a trial? Did you commit the murder? No. Lie. 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 There you go. There we why, go. Have, why have a trial? Why? Why have a trial? 
yeah, again, predicated on the idea that it's infallible. Just, but, go, uh, yeah. go, str go straight to sentencing. Yep. There is a stupid line. Yes, yes, there is. I'm paraphrasing There are, there are a few. <laughs> if they can use fear as a weapon, then they must understand fear themselves. Ah, uh, that one. Is that true? First it, of all, yes. Is it true? Second all, we already knew they feared things. We already know they feared things were right, but to get to your question, at the at, at at the at least it tells me that they understand something of human physiology. Yes. Which, not, not to say but saying they understand fear. They capture somebody, they probe their brains. One part of the brain causes the person to do something weird. They say, let's make a weapon to make them do something weird. It's all they need to do. Right. You don't need to understand fear yourself. But we think they do because they're apparently afraid of dead bodies. We have established from, that, from yes. previous episode, yes. Or at least that was the supposition as to why they avoid the dead bodies. But there you go. And, and to say that a member of a species understands fear is not exactly going out on a limb. No, not as we understand evolution. No. No. no really. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a part of your flight or fight response, really. Yes. Kind of. So... But I guess, yeah, it's possible that if you... I've read science fiction books where where species grew up on a planet that had no predators. And so they have a completely different kind of fear reaction. But but even still, you know, I'm afraid of a tree falling on me in a lightning storm. It, it right. still should have something. Do we think these exactly. spacesuits really look suitable to go up to 60 degree Celsius temperatures? Because to me, they look like fatigues with a silly helmet on and not pressure or heat protective yeah. clothing. Yeah, and like it's like, or, and just like, or why is there a safety issue? So like, I'm afraid to touch a hot stove. You know, makes yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I yeah. Uh, I've got a pair of gloves. They're like, you know, you got all sorts of hot, hot gloves, right? But I have, I have a pair of like fireman gloves for working my uh, smoker grill. Right. So, I mean, it, it can handle, I think, 600 Fahrenheit, but it is, it's a fascinating material. It's all that multi layers of weaving that they make for firefighter outfits. And uh, you're not running around like they are in those, of course, 60 degrees Celsius is, is not that, nowhere near that hot. But still, just they don't seem air conditioned. When they start the story, they're talking about how this planet was a failed star. What kind of yes. failed star has a surface? Ah, that's a good question. Because I thought I, that made no sense to me. I mean, because I, by granted, amateur knowledge of astronomy uh, tells me that if that's a, that if Jupiter were larger to some extent, it could become a star. But there's no surface on Jupiter, right? Right, the gas giant, you, you need to be a gas giant to start with, and then it's, you've got to be a bit bigger. I think Jupiter is considered to be a failed star. You just did not gather enough material to, right. become, a, to become a star. So, um, you know, that's, there's a fine line there, but this does not give that impression at all. Second off, what was wrong with Wang Wong when he called the planet Tataras, the, the place beyond hell? You mean Tartarus? <laughs> Look, yeah. what's Tartarus? Why are you emphasis? Have you never heard that word spoken in your life before? And you just keep 
I don't do not know. It's it isn't not the pronunciation I would use. Um, I'm going to come around to this one because it's actually the most important thing in this episode. And I'll save it for the last. Okay. Um, the skeleton effect was hilarious. Yeah. That was like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. That was so bad. Um, if if they got enough radiation for us to see their skeletons like that, they're dead. They're dead. We we don't need to worry about their amygdalas falling off. They're dead. Uh, and the radiation burns. I mean, they got instantly got radiation burns. Those people are dead. Well, that also leads into that final point. So I'll just I'll switch off to the Marine song. Born in the woods, trained by bear. Dollar the set of dog teeth. Triple go to hate air. Uh, I can't read the rest of it, depending on which version. Uh, <laughs> it's quite that. rebel. <laughs> yep. Um, but uh, it involves brass and uh, and cast iron, but uh, I can't go any further. Good good to know that these tighter-worn old marine songs are still still going there for the in the future. Okay. Why? This is, this is the part that just bugs the heck out of me about this episode. There are episodes of M.A.S.H., and I'll use M.A.S.H. as the example because M.A.S.H. is the ultimate uh, military story ever told on television, in my humble opinion. And there are a lot of times in M.A.S.H. where we get discussions about Hill 403, for example. They want Hill 403, we want Hill 403, then we take it, then they take it, and we take it, and there's a push to take it back, and da 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 Thousands of people are killed or harmed or battered all over the place, which is why they come into the mash unit. And sometimes we're told that these hills are strategically important. And in other times, they're kind of less strategically important, right? They're, they're, they're belittled as to how pointless it is that we keep trying to take this hill and then take it back or... That is a plot point that comes up in a number of military stories. I yes. think in particular of Paths of Glory, directed by Stanley Kubrick, does that. But it comes up in this episode. And we are told explicitly that this is a worthless rock that isn't strategically significant, and yet they have lost thousands of lives. Their word, not mine. Why they, why they have? They, why have they lost one? Why have they lost one? Why have we got all these MIAs? Why are there rumors that people are killed by friendly fire? If if all of that is well known enough to have made it into the scuttlebutt that gets back to the grunts on this Marine team, why has the brass still got people on that rock? There has to be something that we're not being told here. Because those people have been there for a while. There, there are loads of dead marines we alone in just one little spot see a bunch of dead marines yes, and we, we see evidence of mia we see evidence of of you know friendly fire you know uh it's clear that this planet that this rock is deadly and it's clear that they're not being killed by the enemy either so why is it they keep sending people there why is it that they send a resupply team there uh, it unless you know this is like Oh, Aerotech would like us to secure this planet for some reason, which that is not in this episode. But that's the only thing I can think of is that this is meant to make us ask the question, why aren't they trying to keep this rock? Because if it had been if it had been about a, an episode like in MASH where they're talking about the futileness of it, 
they would have made a point of it, a much bigger point of it. But they didn't. They just mentioned it and then forgot it. Yes, I can believe that in this series, that Aerotech may be pulling a number of strings in the military. But we would still have to have a reason why Probably. they want this rock. Yes. Military-industrial complex. Maybe there's something there. So that is an open-end question for us to say, you know, it, because how could how could the brass not know already know about this weapon? How, how well, could they have sent people from there and not known about this if they lost that they many people? Yeah. So, and and I don't care whether or not Aerotech wants it, and we don't know if it's Aerotech or anything else. You don't keep sending people in to a zone that is universally lethal. Even the Marines aren't that stupid. No. And if there is no hope of them surviving, and there's no evidence whatsoever that anybody knows how to counteract this weapon. So, and I don't think our guys are so brilliant that they land there on the planet, and within an hour they figured out that there's a secret chig weapon that works on their amygdala. I find it hard to believe that there isn't somebody smarter than those melons yeah. <laughs> somewhere in the Marine Corps. So, yeah, I, I that that I is would, the I, one thing that comes out of this. Like, it feels like it's setting something up. Yes, and there are few unknowns here, at least from my perspective. Uh, one is that um, this is episode seven of twenty-three, and yep. so there may be something coming up between eight, between eight and twenty-three that maybe helps to explain some of this. Number two, um, this that um the series creators had in mind a five season arc and so they were probably <laughs> laying down hints in season one to pay off in seasons two through five and so i when i come across an unknown and unexplained issue i like i wonder is this something that they're going to pay off later but never never got the chance to do maybe or maybe it was bad writing yeah, I I don't I don't know which it is, but I admit that my brain kind of says it's hard to believe the writing was that bad. Therefore, they must be setting this up. But on the other hand, looking at the rest of the episode, it's not hard to believe it's that bad. And but it is Morgan and Wong, and they are the they are the architects. So you would think that their fingers would be in on the mythos stories, right. if you will, to use the X-Files term. So I I don't know. I guess we will find out, or we won't, um, because if it was in season four, we got a problem. Now they have a problem. Right. I don't have a problem. We would have a problem if there was a season four. Um, oh, yeah. No, no, I take it back. That we wouldn't have a problem because if there was a season four, we would not be looking at this show. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> so we would be safe. Oh, um, it, it all depends. I think that's everything I've got on this. Okay. Then I guess uh, one thing left to say is that next we have a two-parter. Episode eight is Hostile Visit, and episode number nine is Choice or Chance. Well, we have a chance that they might be 
might be good. We will be doing the both as as one podcast. So uh, we uh, we shall see. Kenneth, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at fusionpatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusionpatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.